You're listening to The Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network. The Harbinger Media Network is a partner of Passage, the online journal of left Canadian thought and opinion, which you can find at readpassage.com. But on the Harbinger Media Network, you can hear great shows like Tech Won't Save Us with Paris Marks, whose latest pod features an interview with investigative journalist Will Evans, who dives into the injury crisis in Amazon warehouses. At Harbinger, we're building a community that's challenging right-wing corporate media dominance from coast to coast. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. These steps are not being taken lightly, and I certainly didn't go into public service, nor did any of the people sitting around our cabinet t- table, in order to impose restrictions on how people live their lives. But we believe these are the minimum the minimum restrictions needed right now to safeguard our healthcare system while avoiding widespread damage to people's livelihoods. We are doing everything we can. Everything we can. The minimum. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. Uh, Sandra Azakar, the executive director of Friends of Medicar and a returning champion to the show, joins us. Sandra, welcome back. How are you? Thank you for having me once again. Yeah, I originally uh, wanted to have you on the show to talk about like a specific bad thing that the UCP are kind of like slipping through as people are just dealing with this uh, COVID disaster, and that is um, the the voluntary bloods donation, the voluntary blood donations repeal act. Essentially, uh, private plasma for profit operators are going to be able to set up shop in Alberta now, and we will get to that, um, but. But we cannot not have the executive director of Friends of Medicare on and not talk about the restrictions that were just announced uh, late afternoon yesterday by our fearless leader, Jason Kenney. So before I get into the kind of the good and the bad uh, and the missing, what were your kind of like first impressions of of uh, what Kenny announced yesterday? Um, you know, it was actually one of anger, uh, one of of. Uh, just an incredible amount of frustration uh, to see a government that's so blind in their ideology that they will not listen to the people that are providing healthcare, that are living the reality of of what is happening within our healthcare system, and totally disregard that and, and create this false dichotomy between the uh, uh, economy and the health of Albertans. It was just it was just so frustrating that after nine months, this government has learned nothing from the pandemic and. And that Albertans will continue to be at risk of of tragic outcomes because of of this virus. Yeah, I mean, rage, anxiety, fear. Uh, you know, like my partner did not pay attention to the announcement. She was busy. I, like I, I was like, you know, live tweeting the, the thing on her Twitter feed, and I was like, I'm going to be late. I'm going to pay attention to this thing. And then it was like, so I didn't pay attention to this thing. Uh, what can you tell me about it? And I'm like, yeah, it fucking sucks. <laughs> She's like, oh, great. <laughs> For sure. I, I think that was everybody's uh, response. I, I know I, you know, my, my daughter texted me at the beginning of the thing saying, fuck, this guy's at it again. You know, because we knew right away when he started with his little uh, stories that were very well chosen, if it's, if in fact they were real stories, um, that that he was going to not only pit 
um, you know, the economy versus all these horrible people that want to see, uh, you know, these poor business businesses be lost. Instead of saying, you know what, it's it's a good time for us to shut down and, and for the government to actually step in and provide financial help to those businesses and, and to provide people with sick pay so that they can continue to go to work when they're essential services. Um, there's so many things that he could have done. You know, at the same time that he made these these announcements, we had the, the fiscal update that said we're not doing that bad, we're doing bad, but not that bad. Well, I can tell you, I mean, that this government has taken advantage of every single loophole and every single amount of money that the federal government has sent in our way, which is why our books look better, because they haven't done as much as they could be doing. Um, I think people would understand that uh, a deficit is not unrealistic at this time. Nobody's expecting to, to have balanced budgets. Uh, this is this is a pandemic that nobody saw coming. So regardless of what was happening in the economy prior to this, we all know that it's going to be bad news when we get out of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, deficit margarine at this point is pretty fucking stupid. And, 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 no, it's ridiculous. And speaking of that uh, that that lockdown, or sorry, uh, speaking of the second quarter fiscal update, like there was something embedded in there that was so incredibly just like emblematic of how this government thinks of of the public sector of, of you know the, the the nurses the doctors the teachers the orderlies the lab workers the people who are you know keeping uh you know our our entire healthcare system from being overwhelmed at the moment and he's like oh yeah like the public sector is just a essentially they're a fucking carbuncle on the ass of of the wealth creators in this province yeah we're all leeches <laughs> all leeches that are are not giving back to the economy because we don't create jobs there there's such a you know, a, a lack of understanding of the value of the services that public uh, services workers. So then, you know, they expect healthcare workers who are part of the public sector to continue to go to work every day to risk their lives, and 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 yet, you know, they 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 basically it's it's such a hypocrisy. This government is just the the worst that you could ever hope to have in a time of of some serious need for leadership and and so it's it's unfortunate that we are in, in this political reality that we currently here's are the, here's the in. quote because i think it's worth kind of having it uh just on the record here and, and it's uh this is embedded in like a, a, a q2 fiscal update like this is like a, a, a document from the, that the government of alberta will put out that's full of the like tables and figures uh of the finances of the past two years but they felt the need to insert this quote while the public sector plays a key role in delivering public services, it does not create jobs or generate wealth. Rather, public sector activities and spending are paid by withdrawing money from the economy through taxes or by taking money from future taxpayers by borrowing for deficit financing. <laughs> Oh, that just makes me so angry. I, I, you know, there's, they don't under, like the rural communities, for example, I can give you Smoky Lake, for example, is, is one of those communities where almost the majority of the jobs in that town are generated through public services, either in the healthcare sector or in direct government services. And so when you, when you start talking about the lack of importance that those people play in the economy of rural communities is just so incredibly stupid. There is no other way to describe it. It's, uh, as as uh, Chandra likes to say, disgusting. Oh, you know, because that, yeah, it's just to me, it's it's. I, I have no idea where these guys are getting their information, and, but but it's all ideological, right? And and Kenny in his in his announcement yesterday talked about how they didn't want to be ideological. That his speech was full of ideology, was full of this libertarian, you know, neoliberal 
kind of, of, of thought that we need to be individuals in a, in a time when collectivism is the most important in, in order to save lives. Exactly. Uh, let's it's, it's, yeah, there's nothing to do or say about this government, just the incredibly infuriating rage inducing at their incompetence, their inaction. Uh, and, and yeah, their ideology, it's riven through with every decision they make. They, they are unable to take a step back and consider, you know, the, the greater human project here and just be like, well, how could we use this crisis to ram through, you know, the things that we want to ram through? Exactly. But, uh, but let's, let's run yeah. through the good and the bad and the missing when it comes to the restrictions that were announced yesterday. So uh, the bad, uh, casinos remain open, uh, restaurants remain open, uh, water parks uh, remain open, all with the same restrictions that they had from before the announcement yesterday. Uh, church uh, or places of worship, uh, the restrictions on them stay the same, one third of capacity, uh, but with social distancing and masking. Uh, we do not get the much-asked-for province-wide mask mandate, but masks are now mandatory in indoor workplaces in Calgary and Edmonton. Um, and then there was a variety of restrictions, a variety of complex and contradictory restrictions around like certain levels of business. There were like three levels, three separate kinds of businesses, and some were canceled, and some some were locked down, some weren't, some were by appointment only. But I think uh, the best way to illustrate how these these regulations are kind of like complex and contradictory is that you can't go visit your grandma at her house unless you both live alone or, and are in the same cohort, but you can go play some slots with grandma. You can go to the mall with grandma. You can go to the water park with grandma and you could go to church with grandma. But again, you can't go over to her house. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. You can't see your grandma and you can't see your grandchildren, but you can go and meet them at a, at a restaurant with six other of your family cohorts in in the middle of of a place where and I I know that uh, tons of, of restaurants have taken this that extra steps to put in those division uh, glasses and and do all that they can to mitigate some of the impact, but there's still uh, th this this virus is airborne and and unless they've changed their whole back system you know air air ventilation system it's it's not going to do any good. Yeah. The the yeah. kind of good announcements, like I, I again, we're, I'm I'm going to argue that they did not go far enough in their announcements. But the kind of good that was embedded in this was like a, a mandatory, like no more indoor social gatherings. Great, uh, should have happened a long time ago, based on the numbers we were seeing in the fall. Uh, no wedding or funerals with more than ten people. No receptions, and school uh, school age kids, grades seven to twelve, will move to online learning starting next week, starting November thirtieth. Uh, grades K to six remain the same. What were your thoughts on the? Yeah, for sure, and that and and that goes to the the fact that kids from grade seven to twelve can take care of themselves, right? So they don't need childcare. There, and it would have been a great uh, step if, except they didn't even let the school boards know that this is what they were planning to do. So, um, you know, is it is it because there's such a lack of trust for this government? Is it a another move just to get rid of of more staff that won't be uh, you know needed? Because great kids from grades seven to 12 can take online, learn, online learning. It's just, uh, this is, to me, it's, it's an incredible, um, like I said, lack of, of leadership from this government. Yeah. I mean, these, these are like, again, marginally good things. And again, things that should have happened weeks or months ago when you look at the data. But uh, it's, it's again, incredibly frustrating that this is, this is as far as they will go. This is, this is the most 
of restrictive things they will bring in, you know. No, he's, he talked about minimal, minimal, uh, like always is, with his government is always a race to the bottom, yeah. right? And then I think the big part uh, that we have to talk about when we're talking about the specifics of the restrictions that were announced is what was missing, right? There are no relief payments or CERB-like programs for people who have to stay home due to the pandemic to take care of kids or for whatever reason, uh, or who have just been laid off or would be laid off in the case, or would be you know, not working in the case of a, of a lockdown, uh, a real lockdown. There's no paid sick leave for people, uh, no additional sick leave for healthcare workers who have, again, use, most likely used up all of their sick leave because uh, if you're a healthcare yeah. worker, you're very likely have had to stay home uh, because of exposure to COVID. Um, anything else that jumped out of you about what was missing from, from the announcement yesterday? Oh no, those are all, all what covers all that could have actually been looked at uh, instead of of basically, as I, I think uh, your uh, progress report indicated, the mockdown. It's not really uh, none of these these restrictions that he they added were any different from what was already happening. I don't know at what point they think that it was, you know, it was more than what they needed to do. Minimal, like he said. I mean, I would argue that this is the bare minimum and they still didn't even meet that. I mean, what, I mean, if we were in charge, I mean, we would start nationalizing, you know, long-term care and all of, all of that good stuff, but, but, you know, we're not, we're not quite there yet. Uh, and I, and there's kind of one, uh, one, I think we have to bring this up is like, what were the, what were the most infuriating moments from that, you know, hour and a half press conference that, that stuck out to you, Sandra? Oh, it was it was pitting, uh, you know, the, it's that divisive language that he always uses that, you know, that that people that are uh, calling for a lockdown can't, uh, uh, you know, don't care about people invest in their lives. And and of course, he had to throw in the Venezuelan socialist <laughs> refugee. I, I thought, oh, how how pathetic are you? Venezuelan socialist <laughs> refugee uh, food food stand owner. If you were out there, uh, we want to know your right. story. We want to we want to figure out if you actually exist. I know, right? And yeah, poor Maria. Um, so it was, uh, to me, it was it was that whole uh, idea of pitting one Albertans against each other in this situation instead of, you know, instead of like again yeah, bringing back the the importance of the collective thinking that this is that we all want to be alive after this pandemic is is over and we don't want any of our friends or family or co-workers or anybody else to die from unnecessary uh like i said that dichotomy that doesn't exist yeah i, I mean one thing that jumped out at me was was constantly referring to like you know the, how these decisions were being made uh, because of the science and the data and it's like yeah. We have no fucking clue where people are getting sick. We have a good idea, but like 85% of our 13,000 active cases right right now in Alberta have an unknown cause of transmission because our contact tra- our contact tracing system has blown into a thousand pieces. And yeah. so you're just going off bad data to make these decisions at at, at best, you know? Yeah, and that's what, and and again, yeah. I mean, we know that sometimes Alberta Health Service is a black hole for for data information. It's very hard to get. You know, you you really need to navigate this their system to be able to find what whatever is missing. But but this government made decisions on on like you said, non-existent data because we don't know where this the infections are coming from. So how do you put the fires out when you don't know where they're starting? Uh, November the 6th was when they took away the contact tracing and left it up to Albertans to contact their uh, their people that they had 
potentially been in close. There's still like we hear all the time about people that are too embarrassed to tell others that they've uh, contracted COVID or that they've, you know, that they're COVID positive. And then there's also those people that don't cannot afford to miss work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that is happening. And, and we need we needed to be able to tell those people it's OK. It's OK for you to go home and take care of yourself and your family. Exactly. Uh, it is, um, you know, constantly referring to like, oh, we're making these decisions based on the best science. It's like you 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 let it get to the point where we just where we're flying blind, where we have no idea where our cases are coming from and that the, the data you're going off of is months old. And so it's yeah. it's extremely frustrating there. I mean, I also I also definitely have to bring up, you know, that Jason Kenny sees himself as the the great defender of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And uh, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Jason yeah. Kenny's not a lawyer either. Uh, but uh, he seems to have a, a huge misunderstanding of the reasonable limitations that can be placed on our charter rights when things like a pandemic are happening. <laughs> and so when he says he's like oh no i couldn't i didn't get into this game to restrict the rights and freedoms of people it's like yo man like yeah. you, only if you're not gay or dying from yeah me. like you got into the game like bragging about how you kept dying loved ones from each other at the height of the aids crisis in san francisco like get fucked you know <laughs> exactly i mean it, the, the hypocrisy is just rampant in that guy i, I just I can't, I can't even with him. It's like, he is your uh, career politician that has learned to use thesaurus extensively to make himself sound so uh, great. But uh, I think his understanding is sometimes limited as to um, how the policies and decisions that he's making is imp- are impacting so many lives. I just, to me, that that would be a huge responsibility to to bear. And and I don't think he's up to the task. No, definitely not. And I and I think the final part about the like most infuriating moments from that presser were him talking essentially like ruling out the idea of a COVID zero approach, right? He, he brought up, uh, he said that it would be intolerable to get to zero COVID cases, that the, the costs would simply be too high. And he, he brought up these like societies where they had brought in circuit breaker lockdowns and then never got out of them. And the massive impacts is that it had on those societies. He didn't actually mention any of those places by name, but uh, <laughs> so that, that stood out to me, especially when there are multiple examples all over the world of uh, nations who have handled COVID well, who in Taiwan right now, they're having like massive outdoor, like, uh, music concerts you know what i mean like like taiwan south korea even china is handling quite well australia uh, new zealand atlantic canada like there are these places that have done really well and have managed to get and and where covid zero is the goal and and those societies seem to be functioning just fine while in our system the hospitals are like literally five minutes away from like being overwhelmed and people are going to start dying in hallways and people aren't going to be able to get their cancer treatments and the surgeries they need in order to live, you know? Yeah. Well, and that was another thing that he made so much note for. And I, and I know why he was, he was doing that is, is all these cancel surgeries, but don't worry, we have a, a, a solution to that because we're, we're uh, privatizing and bringing in for-profit companies to, uh, you know, to, to deal with this backlog that has been created. That's all that you could hear when he was talking about uh, the consequences of an overstretched healthcare system, right? Yeah. As if, as if car accidents, as, as if other illnesses were not still happening uh, as we speak. Exactly. 
And I think even with these newly introduced restrictions, which I think don't go far enough, it's still going to get really bad. There is there is a certain amount of death and destruction and havoc that is going to be wreaked on our healthcare system that is just baked in at this point because of how long it took for the government to act and because they still haven't really acted with enough uh, alacrity and 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 vigor in this case. So I suppose uh, we're almost to the end of this section. What, what are you hearing from workers on the ground in the hospitals? Like how bad is it right now? You know, I'm hearing a lot of despair uh, and fear. It's, it's, it's almost like when you go to work, you, you shouldn't expect to to come home and infect your family or, or you shouldn't have that fear of, of if you go to work sick or if, if you don't go to work, like what is that going to do to my coworkers? There's there's such a, a loss of hope when it comes to uh, the people that I'm hearing from, uh, you know, where they're expected to be at work um you know, in hospitals while they're waiting for their COVID results to come back because of the short staff. You know, even though the the numbers that that are being reported, yet again, you know, delayed reporting of how many healthcare workers have actually been infected, not just nurses or or doctors or anything else, but everybody in the system. Every time that somebody gets a positive result, you got to look at the fact that that there is uh, at least you know, the units that they've been at, the people that they've had in contact with that need to self-isolate. And so um, that is causing a great deal of stress on, on people in terms of not having enough staff to go around. People are tired after nine months of the stress uh, and frustration. And then you have a government who's who's uh, crapping on them at every turn when it comes to legislations, when it comes to public statements like we saw, like the one that you just quoted. It's just it's not a happy place. It's not a healthy place for, for healthcare workers at this time. Yeah. You know, there was a point where we would all come out and, and, and bang our pots and pants. And now, you know, it's, it's almost like you got to go to work and that's it. And that, and, and that's the expectation. It's just, it's just unbelievable. The lack of respect that we show uh, these workers, nobody should go to work thinking that they're going to die from having, from being there. Yeah. The, like the DMS we get, uh, and the messages we get from folks who are either yeah, working in hospitals, working in the contact tracing system, it is there is a a, a demoralized you know workforce there. <laughs> there is a a real uh, they are they are not feeling great, and and it's not unexpected. This it's November, you know, we went into original lockdown back in March. And you know, yeah. the government has failed to enact policies that stop the second wave. Everyone knew a second wave was coming. And yet here we are in the midst of a second wave and it's really bad. And if I was a, a healthcare worker, it, I would be pissed <laughs> and I would be dreading going to work. And I would be, I would not think that the government is interested in creating conditions that are going to make my life or the lives of the people around me any better. And that is, no. that is just the, the simple reality of it. So uh, we're, I think we we're almost the end of this segment, Sandra, but what's your, these, a lot of these restrictions uh, expire in three weeks and the kind of, it looked like three weeks was the kind of like time that was going to be given to, to see if these things actually worked. What do you think, where do you think we're going to be at in three weeks? And do you think we will have further restrictions? Do you think we will have a lockdown by Christmas? I, I think Kenny's hoping that everybody will get their shopping in for Christmas before these uh, restrictions expire, so he doesn't have to make that uh, that um, decision. But uh, I'm thinking, I don't know. I just I, I look at the face of the chief medical officer, health officer, and I, and I think I wonder what she's thinking. You know, I wonder what those recommendations that she made 
were actually really all about. She's a she's a doctor and and she must have conversations with the hundreds of physicians that have written this government asking for a lockdown. So I I can't see her being too different from that. Um um. Unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see an increase and a spike in numbers. And um, I don't know. I mean, he was asked yesterday what it would take for him to shut down. And he was very nonchalant about it, right? Yeah. Um, so um, I'm thinking, um, does he care? I, I, th- I think the only thing that I, I would see him shutting down is so that he can continue to go to church for Christmas, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I think these measures might hold the line a bit. I think we're very likely to get... Uh, I think the numbers are going to get worse in the short term, and then they might start leveling out at around in, in two to three weeks, which is scary because if if there is no lockdown over Christmas, if new restrictions aren't brought in over Christmas, I am I am terrified of what our healthcare system is going to look like two weeks after Christmas, and and what that yeah. like January fifth, January tenth timeframe is going to look like for case counts because that is that is the real kind of apocalyptic scenario, and I get I get scared just thinking about that. Me too. And, and, you know, it's sad to hear physicians talking about the fact that triaging patients uh, and, and trying to make life and death decisions will, will be part of what they have to do uh, if, if the government didn't respond in the way that they should have. And so if it comes to that, I, I think it, it, it'll be a sad day in Alberta. It'll be a sad day in Canada when, when a province uh, has been reduced to those types of decisions being made. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's enough on the lockdown. Uh, now that we've at least kind of partially digested uh, the news about that, let's let's move on to the other thing that again I originally wanted to talk to you about, but the the timing worked <laughs> out that it was just we just had to talk about the the lockdown announcement. But yes, the government of Alberta has introduced and passed a private member's bill, the Voluntary Blood Do- Blood Donations Repeal Act, that allows essentially allows private for for-profit plasma donation, quote-unquote donation clinics, plasma sales clinics, to set up shop in Alberta and to offer cash for plasma. Uh, and before we get into the kind of mechanics of the legislation and and, and how kind of poorly conceived it was and, and why these rules are a kind of open matter for debate amongst conservatives, I think that we need to understand the economics uh, of the business of for-profit plasma farming. And please jump in at any time here, Sandra. But I mean, this is an issue that I'm passionate about. I know you've done a lot of work on too. So anytime, uh, any jump in. But I think let's just be clear about what we're talking about off the first, off the hop, right? Plasma, what is plasma, right? It's a, it's a protein-rich liquid in your blood that is used um, to not only like give to people who are like suffering from inju- injuries and disease, but it's also used to create a number of treatments and therapies. And these treatments and therapies that use plasma, they need one, they need a whole lot of it. And two, these, these treatments and therapies have been exploding in popularity in the, over the past decade or so. And, and the second important point about for-profit plasma is that it is a huge business. Uh, back in 2008, it was around $4 billion a year. And in 2020, it's a $22 billion a year business. Do those numbers those numbers jump out at you, Sandra? No, actually, I, I, I had even higher numbers of, of becoming a, a lucrative business by 2026 of being over 30 six billion dollars I believe this is this is a very fast growing uh, lucrative business and 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 the market for um, the plasma derived uh, pharmaceuticals it has become huge and, and like you said the plasma um, 
itself is 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 uh, in in Canada just so people understand because sometimes this this conversation you know it complicates me it complicates everybody who's trying to understand really what is happening here in Canada we have enough blood for fresh transfusion of plasma and for fresh transfusion of blood that's never been an issue and and the plasma is actually uh, is that straw colored part of the blood. Um, that contains the proteins and, and the clotting factors and antibodies, uh, you know, known as hemoglobins. Um, and the and the antibodies that this this plasma carries help to fight uh, infection, uh, while the clot factors, the clotting factors help to uh, our blood to clot. So it, they're very necessary. And if you don't have uh, that ability, like hemophilics, for example, uh, not the the, uh, the clotting factor that is missing, then then of course you have a lot of health issues. So it's it's an incredibly valuable um, part of our of our insides of our body um, but um, over the years it's, it has become uh, part of a very lucrative business and and that's where this whole conversation comes out of right it's is the role of plasma in the pharmaceutical industry yeah there there is no way to synthesize it. it 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 has to come from people people must give it or sell it and that all plasma in the world comes from humans and uh yeah i mean it's worth to point out that like a quarter of those 22 billion dollar year global plasma market goes to this these intravenous immunoglobulins um these i other otherwise called ivig and uh, this IVIG stuff has just become incredibly popular as an off-label medical treatment. And and that is why we have seen an explosion in in kind of the global plasma market because one, these things are, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies make huge money off of it because the, the delta between like what you give someone who gives you a plasma donation is, and, and what you actually get when you sell the, the finished product is massive. We're talking about factors of 10, 20, right? Between like a $30 do, a payment to someone giving you a, a plasma donation and, and $300 worth of IVIG that you can spin out of it. Exactly. And it's that, and that's what motivates these these companies to to try and harvest as much plasma as they can because they can turn it into a very expensive pharmaceutical. Yeah, like there's a, an NYT article that we'll have in the show notes. Uh, it's very good, actually. I mean, I, I encourage everyone to read it to understand what is going on. And there is a huge market of these, uh, you know, very good profiles that talk about the the plasma industry, and they almost all start off with the very sad story of like some like poor racialized person who. Has has to go and donate plasma on or like every 10 days or every 12 days or whatever. It just literally in order to put food on their table or to help their kid get through school or like whatever, like literal sad story is, is being told. This is, this is like a little, this is a trope at this point. This is, this is like, I've seen half a dozen different like plasma stories where they, the, the lead is, you know, poor racialized person X has to jump on a bus and go donate plasma all the time. And this, this plasma, this plasma article from the New York times, what is the blood of a poor person worth really does kind of get into this arbitrage that happens. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's worth also pointing out that the, the huge driver of this industry is the United States. You, you read these stories and the United States is over and over again described as the Saudi Arabia of plasma or the Saudi Arabia of blood. And they have 30 percent of the global plasma market comes from the United States. And so and when you look at where private for profit plasma companies are entrenched, it is mostly in the United States. There's a handful of other countries like uh, Germany and a couple others in Europe that allow uh, plasma sales. But 
But essentially what has happened is that these companies have figured out how to farm poor people for a highly valuable substance. And the U.S. has essentially monetized their poor people by farming them for plasma. And the, the business model of the plasma farming industry depends on there being plenty of poor, desperate people who need cash fast. And when you look at where these... Um, these plasma donation clinics, again, plasma sales clinics, where they end up, they overwhelmingly end up in poor racialized neighborhoods. There's a, a study that we'll link to in the show notes. It was published in 2019 in the journal Society for Social Work and Research. And the foundings, here's, here's, the, here's the quote from the results. Our findings indicate that there are greater odds of finding plasma centers in census tracts with a greater proportion of people living below 200% of poverty, non-Hispanic Black, and Hispanic populations. Uh, the conclusions of this... Or, quote, given the significant expansion of plasma sales over the past decade, it seems reasonable to collude, conclude that less advantaged Americans have significant demand for the opportunity to sell their blood plasma. Given the size of the industry and the clear interrelationship between the growing number of plasma centers and poverty and vulnerability, policymakers should consider the ethical implications of the reliance of plasma donations as a form of social safety net. And it's a very sad statement for for that society that does that. I, I to me, that's that's the crux of the of the story is is the fact that that these companies, you know, maybe we have moved forward uh, since since the 1990s in Canada where we had, uh, you know, thousands of Canadians die, and and Canada has a very particular history of of blood. Um, you know, if if your listeners have were around around the 19 uh, 90s where where we had the Creever inquiry because of the tainted blood scandal where thousands of, of Canadians died because they were infected with with uh, uh, tainted blood um, and then over 30,000 Canadians uh, you know were infected with HIV and and Hep C um, you know so so basically that's that's been the reason and that we only have one national collector of blood. Um, and the, this Creever inquiry actually provided very clear um, direction as to how it is that we can become a better society, how we can ensure that things like are, that are happening in the United States and where we're taking advantage of, of the most vulnerable do not occur. And, and, and so um, I think in a lot of ways, you know, Again, it's, it's, this is seen as a, a great business opportunity. And so when Kenny indicated that Alberta was open for business, he wasn't kidding that nothing is off the table, including our blood. Yeah. And so with that kind of much needed context now out there, what does the recently introduced UCP, recently introduced UCP bill do and why is this a terrible idea? You know, this, I, I, and I have to mention this because I, I always found it very uh, funny when I was listening to Question Period and, and listening to Tani Yao's uh, uh, colleagues talk about such a well-researched bill uh, that was going to deal with the domestic supply of plasma and and how he could not be the, you know, he was the best person to, to bring this bill because of his vast knowledge as a paramedic on this situation. Well, this bill was only a three-page bill, if you count the cover and the back. And the only thing that the bill said was repeal the Blood Donation Act. And that was it. There was no plan in place um, as to how they think that uh, they're going to increase plasma donation. There was no no direction given in this No regulation bill. for the industry Absolutely. at all? Like it was just no, like... Nothing, yeah. Just... Just repeal the bill, and and so 
you know, just starting from from the fact, and and if you listen to to what the the discussion back and forth was, they were adamant that they just wanted to basically repeal a bill that was passed by the previous government. Uh, and they saw anything that was re remotely seen as a support for this bill as just the, the darn unions wanting to protect their, their workers. Uh, but no understanding of, of what this whole situation of, of the whole entire blood uh, history behind, uh, uh, you know, behind what made this decision come to, come uh, to be a reality or the, or the previous you know, bill that they repealed. So, so for me, it was incredibly frustrating watching people that have no knowledge um, make policy decisions that again will impact everybody, all Canadians, um, and and make a mockery of of of, the, of those of that science and the evidence that's already in place. Yeah, and just a bit of context. So, yeah, it was it, this was a private member bill. It was introduced by MLA Tani Yao, who represents uh, riding up in northern Alberta near Fort McMurray. Um, yeah, like you said, it, it is it is literally just getting rid of a bill that the NDP brought in that banned plasma sales, essentially, right? And right. This bill did nothing to to secure the domestic uh, supply of plasma, and 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 worse, what it does, what it actually does, is to threaten the uh, to re irreversibly uh, reduce our domestic supply of blood. Because when you allow payment uh, for the collection of plasma, it only benefits the corporate collectors. Um, that will be able to export whatever they they get from Alberta, um, and into a like we said into a multi-million dollar global market, has nothing to do with increasing our plasma supply. Yeah, this is purely a business story, right? Like this is this is purely a business play. It is it has nothing to do with like if you're in a car accident uh, and, and you need plasma, there's plasma. You know, if if you if you are yeah. sick and you require a plasma transfusion, there is more than enough plasma that exists in order to get you the 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 plasma that you need in order to get the medical treatment that you require. This is all just in order to feed this huge maw, this huge kind of like pharmaceutical thirst uh, for plasma in order to create these treatments, right? Yeah. So, I mean, and, and again, even before COVID started, um, we, we, we are always in a situation where we need to increase our plasma supply and, and COVID made it even, you know, it impacted it even more because, um, you know, the, these medications don't have a long uh, shelf life as well because they're made from, you know, from a natural product. And so uh, in a lot of ways, yeah, you know, there, there has to be more, um, understanding of how it is that we can address uh, these concerns when there is shortage of supply. But but it doesn't have, um, not in the context that this bill was intended to to kind of address the domestic supply. They used COVID um, to highlight a, a, a shortage that, that was there before COVID that should have been dealt with um, during COVID, before COVID, and going forward from COVID. So, and one of the ways that we can, we would have been able to do that would have been as if we actually work with our our blood um, collection collector, Canadian Blood Services, uh, to to increase the amount of of, uh, of support that we give them in in their in their uh, task to collect plasma. You know, there's a plasma collection center that's actually going to be open in Lethbridge in December this month. Um, and the government, uh, the previous government in 
well, this government as well, have have um, invested a lot of money um, to to ensure that that we support this this plasma collection. Alberta is is uh, has the largest uh, blood collection uh, center in in uh, Canada in Edmonton. And, and so, you know, we, we do really well in terms of the importance of the amount of, right? of blood that we collect. Over time um, and, that and it hasn't been a priority Anything that, I mean, that creates competition to that is, is going to inevitably impact again, not just another step. Alberta, but and, Western Canada. Uh, and you can only give a, a whole blood donation, Canada, I think, every two months, whereas you can give services. a plasma donation every um, we, 10 to 14 you know, days, we, right? We basically form Actually, even more than that, you can sometimes donate every two weeks, like two times per week. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like they're taking less out of you in a plasma donation compared to a whole blood donation. And, and yeah, and, yeah so that's, that's interesting. I did not know that Lethbridge was going to open a, another CBS plasma donation, but that is good news because again, we don't, if collecting plasma is important. I mean, we've, we've kind of talked smack about these global pharmaceutical companies, but these treatments are important and these treatments do save lives, but you have yes. to collect your plasma in a way that is ethically done. <laughs> Well, it's not even ethically done. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, we can't be a hundred percent. We cannot be taking advantage of the vulnerable in our society. And that, that should not be your only income that you're bringing in. And, um, there's all kinds of things like that, but, uh, you know, when you're, when this bill was trying to, to talk or the bill wasn't when the politicians were saying that this bill would address, um, you know, all those issues about domestic supply. What happens right now is that the the plasma that we collect gets sent to two contracted um, companies that in turn turn that plasma into pharmaceuticals, and then we buy those pharmaceutical backs. So we guarantee in that way that we get every single drop of plasma back in the form of plasma-derived uh, medications. When we have the private sector involved, all the plasma that they collect, they will put into the international market and, and sell it to the highest bidder with no assurance whatsoever that we will get that back. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth reiterating that th despite what you might hear uh, from, from people who support this bill, uh, Canadian Blood Service is remains committed to the non-commercialization of the blood su supply and will not be buying plasma from these uh, these newly established collection centers. And so what that means, again, is what you said, any fresh plasma extracted at these for-profit plasma sale centers will be sold abroad and will not in any way contribute yeah. to the Canadian supply. It is a pure business story. It is a pure business play. Plasma is a valuable resource. And what the UCP has done is it has allowed private for-profit plasma sales operators to set up shop in Alberta and start monetizing uh, poor people and harvesting their valuable, precious bodily fluids. It is it is literally like yeah. horror show, dystopic, bad science fiction stuff, but it is for real and it is already happening at scale in the United States. Yes, you're, you're 100% right. Uh, so I know that like if we wanted to find, uh, you know, a, a plasma donation donation clinic in the United States that, again, the studies show that the vast majority of them are just set up in strip malls in poor racialized neighborhoods. But what is the current status of the, the plasma sales industry in Canada? It's still quite nascent, right? Yeah, it's, it's very recently, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. We only um, there was. Um, in 2015 is when when all of this started, and uh, currently we have uh, three locations in in uh, in Canada where people can get paid to donate the plasma. Um, 
the company that's actually leading the charge in this is Canadian Plasma Resources. And they have a plasma center in Saskatoon and one in New Brunswick. Um, and the third one that I'm talking about, uh, which the UCP and all the you know um, people that support the profiteering of, of blood um, always mention is the um, is the fact that Prometic Plasma Resource Company has a facility in Winnipeg. But this has to be very clear in people's mind that um, that this uh, collection of blood in Manitoba has always been and will remain voluntary but the collection of plasma is paid. Um, and it has been very limited practice through its 50 uh, year history. So we're talking about a company that has been there for over his 50 years. And it was uh, a rare exemption that was recognized by uh, Justice Creever as being necessary. And it wasn't meant to set any kind of precedent to justify the widespread paid plasma collection um, from the general public. So um, telling citizens that um, that this is, you know, has this clinic is a perfect example how it doesn't impact voluntary is just deceitful. This was one of the, uh, the like I said, of the clinics that was grandfathered in by Judge Creever and has always been there because they provide very specific uh, services for very rare blood disorders. So it's, it, it's not the same. So we've spent the past, you know, 15, 20 minutes tearing down what, you know, what we believe is this bad idea, but what are the arguments that the UCP and their supporters use to, to justify, you know, why this is a good idea? Um, one of the biggest ones that they like to use is why uh, should plasma donors not be paid? Uh, you know, because I mean, you know, they're investing their time and and they're and they're doing this wonderful thing. So why should they not be compensated? And it's my blood. So why should I not be paid for it? Um, and and for us is is the fact that human tissue is not meant to be a revenue stream, and it should never be a revenue stream for private corporations. You know, and um, I know that Tani Yao took great offense to us saying that blood is a public resource. Um, and he called us socialists for that. But um, I think in a lot of ways, Justice Creever, who actually said that the blood is a public resource, um, is, is uh, talking about, about the fact that it shouldn't be corporatized, that it shouldn't be a commodity to be sold in the markets. And, and he indicated that donors should not be paid. And we see the World Health Organization, the European Blood Alliance, all, all supporting the fact that donors should not be, be paid in, in, in competition with the public sector in collecting blood. And even at that time, he also talked about sufficient blood uh, that should be collected. So, you know, the arguments are, that are, are there to justify it is, are not good, not um, scientifically based or, or even ethically, <laughs> ethically yeah. based. Like you just you can't be profiting from people's uh, human tissue. This is so wrong. It's true. I mean, I saw some support from unexpected places. Uh, I saw an organ. I don't. I'm unfamiliar with the specifics of this organization, but the Canadian Immunodeficient Patient Organization uh, was very publicly asking their members and supporters to, you know, support the UCP bill. Where does where does something like that come from? Well, these company these uh, groups are are heavily funded by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so, so just your usual from. kind of astroturfing, then, is what you're thinking. 
<laughs> yeah, I, it's it's not what I'm thinking. It's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I you know we get we get blamed for being funded by unions or by being funded by uh, it, special interest groups, um, and on the same page, these companies or these groups are are hugely uh, um, funded um, by by uh, pharmaceutical companies that have a vested interest in in what they have to say, yeah. right? I mean, I, again, I didn't do any research in that organization, but dramatically unsurprising. Um, you know, my big criticism of this bill is that one, it's there's just like simply no direction, right? Like there's, it it repeals a bill that outlawed plasma sales, and it just says plasma sales are allowed now. And then so since there's no legislation to actually manage this industry, it's just going to be a fucking capitalist free for all. It's going to be the wild west. It will be a gold rush. You know, organizations are going to stampede here, and there is going to be and 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 what happens is that when you uh, allow literal blood sucking corporations to set up without hardly any regulations, um, bad things are going to happen. The abuse, the system will be abused. Capitalism does not have a great track record here. And and yeah, and you make a great point too about how, uh, I mean, I think it's simply an affront to human dignity for poor people to essentially become human blood bags for hugely profitable pharmaceutical megacorporations. And, and when you introduce the profit motive and modern advertising techniques uh, to plasma farming, there will be abuse. And this bill yeah. essentially just accepts that that's going to happen, and maybe maybe we'll get some regulations after the fact, after we get a, a handful of scandals. Um, but it's it's truly it's truly fucked up. Like I think how what what the possibilities of what the bad like possibilities of this are, and I think there is. Uh, you know, a way you could do this. Like if the true value of, of people's plasma went to the people selling it, maybe you could make the argument that that plasma sales were, were good or should be allowed, right? But when you're talking about people getting a $30 donation and then a pharmaceutical company able to make a $300 profit off of their the IV, just the IVIG that they're able to harvest from one donation, uh, you just don't you're just not able to make that argument that people aren't getting fair value for what they're actually giving up and yeah go ahead i know and i'm i was just gonna say but is there a value to to your like obviously in the in the in capitalist world yeah there is a value to your your human tissue but but technically um you know this is this is a a life-giving uh organ or product that that you could help somebody else i you know and it's not about being flaky or or altruistic it's it's about the fact that you know we're we're selling people's body parts <laughs> that's what it comes down to right and so for me it's it's just as as gross as you think yeah no exactly like, like i'm i'm talking hypothetically about the fair value being going to people like there there, there really isn't it, sh mm -hmm. it should be again blood is a public resource as justice creever said as you said and and when you allow these like literal blood sucking corporations to set up shop, uh, it's they're going to be it's going to be bad news. And frankly, I don't want them anywhere near our blood supply. And no. so this is this is the situation that we find ourselves in in you know Alberta in 2020 is this science fiction dystopia before us. Yeah, you know what? And it's always the unknown pathogens. I I know that the UCP has said that you know safety is is not an issue and that we fear monger. But um, when when you have public control, you also have public accountability uh, when it comes to uh, issues like that. Uh, we don't want a repeat of 
of, uh, of what happened with the tainted blood scandal. I think we owe it to the legacy of all those people that died to ensure that the safety uh, of our blood supplies is paramount and, and kept at the forefront of any kind of discussion. Um, it's like I said, it's the unknown pathogens that we don't know. Um, how they're transmitted and uh, you know the Zika virus was one of them nobody knew if that was going to be uh, somehow in our bloods in our blood supply so you know there's all kinds of advances that have uh, taken place since the Creever inquiry but there's always that unknown and why would we leave it up to uh, a market that uh, focuses on profit rather than than best outcomes yeah I mean we are introducing an incredible amount of risk to everyone in Alberta and the only people who are benefiting are these pharmaceutical mega corporations. Uh, I think I think that's the best place to leave it, Sandra. Thank you for your time and for coming on the show. What's the what's the best way for folks out there to follow your work? Uh, you have the mic. Plug plug away. Yeah, you know what? I um, we're at a very unprecedented time as well in terms of our organization. So, um, you know, we need everybody's support to be able to continue our fight uh, to protect public health care. Uh, at this moment and within, within this political reality. And I would urge everybody to uh, throw in a few bucks and become members of, of Friends of Medicare. We need you now. We need you to not only add your funds, but also to add your voices to to the fight that we're trying to wage against this very ideological government. Go on to our website, www.friendsofmedicare.org. Um, you'll find all kinds of information about um this bill and and the impact that other legislations and and policy changes have uh, you know have on Albertans and our public health care. We have a tracker there that you can keep uh, informed about exactly what this government has done. Um, and we um, stay on top of everything that, or we at least try to stay on top of everything that this government is doing to our public health care. And, and more than ever, we need you now to become members to make sure that uh, we mitigate at least some of the damage that this government has already done to our public health care system. Sandra, thanks. Thank you. And thank you for everything you do. Uh, yeah, folks, go out there and support Sandra if you can. Also, uh, if you like this podcast and want to keep hearing more podcasts like it, as well as all of the other good things you can find at theprogressreport.ca, there are a few things you can do. Um, share this podcast, review this podcast. Um, those are the two that that really actually help us. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, leaving a review really helps other people find us uh, and sharing it. Again, we depend on word of mouth advertising. Uh, and finally, uh, like Sandra said, if, if financial support does go a long way. So if you feel like becoming a small monthly patron is something that is within your budget, easy way to do that is go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons and five, 10, $15 a month, whatever you can afford. Uh, Jim and I really like doing this job and we really like eating food and having a roof over our heads. Uh, also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, things you think I messed up on, I'm very easy to reach. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney and you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communists for the amazing theme. Thanks again to Sandra Azakar for coming on the show. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>